Hello, Mead friends. Welcome to the Golden Coast Mead Podcast. I'm your host, Brando Tice, and today's conversation with Frank will be about regenerative honey. We start off with defining regenerative honey and then do a deep dive on what it would look like for a professional beekeeper to produce such a honey. Then we get into how we envision a certification process and the ins and outs of a system that would support and grow a regenerative honey label. Now let's get into it. Hey everyone, here at Golden Coast Mead, we consider drinking alcohol not only a luxury, but a celebration of life. If you partake in this celebration, we advocate for drinking regenerative mead made from real honey to help shift the $1.5 trillion alcohol industry in a better direction. When you drink our regenerative mead, you are helping to make the earth healthier, more biodiverse, and abundant. Drop monoculture-based booze and drink regenerative mead. Visit our website, www.goldencoastmead.com, to learn more about our regenerative mead business and be a part of the celebration. Cheers. Cheers, Frank. Cheers, Brando. What are you drinking today? Wildflower Sour. You love that one, huh? It's unlike anything else in the world. (laughs) Yeah, it's tart. It's flavorful. It's layered, but also refreshing and approachable. That's that's fair. I mean, you like what you like, right? Well, you know, I, I like all of our stuff. I just think that um, I'm really stoked that we have developed something that is totally unique and is definitely a mead, but unlike any other mead on the market, as far as I know. That's fair. This dry is definitely getting more cohesive, in my opinion. Yeah, that aging process is a thing it's crazy how that yeastiness goes away at the end okay the back end yeah i haven't had it in a couple of weeks but it was definitely expressing a lot of fermentation character a couple of weeks ago but then we turned it into that groot with the uh, herbs and it was really good so yeah i'm looking forward to seeing how, where it's at all right so today we're talking regenerative honey and we're doing a kind of a deep dive into how we define regenerative honey here at Golden Coast Mead mm-hmm. and how we want to see that play out in the future when it comes to potentially making it a certification and what that certification process may look like. Brad, you want to go ahead and define regenerative honey for the audience? Yeah. So regenerative is this way of thinking about human activity that expands human activity from sustainable to even better than sustainable, right? So we can look at the whole spectrum of human activity and like sustainable is the ability to keep doing something over and over again. Mm -hmm. And then on the opposite end from regenerative, um, so I'm gonna say regenerative is over here and then the opposite end is over here. Sustainable is in the middle. Over here is extractive and destructive. People taking stuff out of a system, degrading that system's capacity to support life. Can we get an example of a destructive process? Yeah, uh, strip mining. Strip mining. Right, like where you're just taking a whole mountain ecosystem and turning it into a pit with like toxic chemicals in the bottom. Okay. Right, (laughs) that's extractive, destructive. (laughs) I've never heard of strip mining, so you're gonna have to talk me through that process. What do they do? Oh man, that's so gnarly. So there's strip mining all over the world, but like West Virginia has a fair amount of it. And um, they do it for coal, they do it for uh, gold, they do it for rare earth metals in different parts of the world. And basically they like start at the top of a mountain okay. with like a high pressure 
um, drill extraction device and then like these filters and they just like spray the mountain into slurry that then goes through the various With like a drill essentially like they're it's, just drilling down uh yeah it's like a it's like a super high pressure water um jet oh that like cuts the earth Jeez. and i'm not an expert in this but like from what i've seen in terms of what happens to places before and after strip mining this is how it works they use this high pressure water drill turns the mud and dirt into a slurry that slurry gets filtered to extract whatever the minerals are that they're after. Okay. And so what was like a mountain becomes a pit and all of <laughs> like toxic chemicals. And I'm sure that there are various efforts to clean this up, but like at the end of, of the life cycle of the business, there is just a pit where once there was a mountain and a oh. whole ecosystem. Oh, geez. Okay. Yeah. So extractive destructive. Okay. <laughs> Destroying mountains, okay. <laughs> yeah, like literally leaving just like toxic pits at the end. Um, so anything that's going to result in a super fun site, you know, an EPA oh. site where like humans should not live here because it is too toxic, mm -hmm. right? Um, on the other side, right, beyond sustainable is regenerative. So systems that make a system more capable of su supporting life. So that's like regenerative agriculture is so take this concept of regenerative apply it to agriculture and you've got you know uh high density centralized animal feeding operations on one hand right CAFOs, where mm -hmm. like animals are kept in cages their excrement is um collected at a point that it becomes like toxic waste and then they have to do all these processing and treatments to like try and mitigate that but the impact on the local ecology is atrocious and the people's lives and the animals have to like live with all these antibiotics because they're exposed to all of these uh, gnarly diseases as a result of being so concentrated and not having access to exercise or outdoors. So that would be extractive, destructive agriculture. Sustainable would be like, okay, we figure out a system where like we can keep doing this and the system doesn't break down we can grow these pigs and we're going to be able to do this into the future forever mm -hmm. but what if we used the waste from the pigs to make compost that healed the soil and then grew plants and trees that fed the pigs naturally and then we harvest those uh trees and plants for other value-added creating or value creating crops and products and now you've got like a whole system that is way bigger and more supportive than just this centralized animal feeding operation. Gotcha. So with honey, we're kind of approaching it from the same perspective, right? Regenerative is the effort that increases a, capa a system's capacity to support life. Um, one of our teachers, Carol Sanford, talks about it actually looks at an entity's essence and increases the entity's ability to express that essence which is almost mystical language but this lady has like 40 years of awesome business experience to back up that that approach works and when everyone on a team understands it and is working with it together then the business is capable of doing things that no one else can replicate because they're using their essence to help their clients essence express and then boom value gets created every day so over here regenerative apiculture means looking at the essence of bees, looking at the essence of beekeepers, looking at the essence of the ecosystems that they're a part of, and how do we increase all of their capacity to express that essence? Gotcha. So we boiled it down at the Regenerative Apiculture Working Group, 
in the 30-page white paper that we published at regenerativeapiculture.org um, into outcomes that increase livelihoods for beekeepers, survival rates for bees, and health for bees, and then biodiversity and soil health for landscapes that the beekeepers and the bees are pollinating. Gotcha. Okay. So that's a lot. Let's take that one at a time. Let's get, let's start with biodiversity. What does on a bee farm, what does biodiversity look like and how do you, how did you guys define that within that paper? Yeah. So biodiversity is a metric um, that you can expand and contract your scale on your scope on. Uh, so for a given piece of land, what are the number of different species that live on that piece of land? If ecological health is a function of diversity and resilience, more diversity is better from eco ecological health than a monoculture, which only has one species growing on it. Okay. Can you give me like a, an example? Yeah. So if you compare um, corn, monoculture corn, okay. where we're just growing one type of corn, one, one crop, over the life cycle of that field, if all that is grown there is corn, the soil will go from productive and supportive to degraded to un incapable of supporting more crops. Okay. Right? Because you're, you're not creating any kind of nutrient cycle um, to restore the ecosystem that exists within the soil. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're doing rotational grazing with rotation cropping, then you can get huge soil building and um, food soil web regeneration. So the food soil web is this thing that we've only started to understand in the last 20 years. But instead of looking at soil as just this like dirt media to grow plants in, mm -hmm. we're starting to look at it as an ecosystem that's full of all these microbes. And it gets really cool and really wild. But basically through a relationship between microorganisms, different funguses, and then the roots of different plants, there's this ability, the plants feed the microorganisms, microorganisms and funguses sugar from their roots. So it's not just putting out sugar through its nectar, it's putting out sugar through its roots. And by feeding those microorganisms, those microorganisms are able to make nutrients in the soil more available to the plants. Okay. So even that level of biodiversity, like what's the biodiversity of your soil? If you're just putting chemical fertilizer on top of your soil, you're probably killing those microorganisms that worth, that live within those soils. And that might be available to the plants for a little bit and you might get this huge boost. But over time, the microorganisms that turn dirt into soil, soil that sticks to the ground and doesn't blow away in the wind like happened in the Dust Bowl. Um, if you're nuking them with chemical fertilizers, they're gonna be gone at the end of like 10 years and that soil is gonna literally be blowing away which is like a problem that we are seeing globally, that modern chemical-based agriculture is reducing or creating huge amounts of soil erosion. Um, and we could solve it by adopting regenerative ag agricultural practices that increase biodiversity in soil and on landscapes. Gotcha. So when it comes to regenerative beekeeping farms, you're not only looking at like the bees and how they're collecting nectar, nectar, but you're looking at like the whole property and like everything growing on the property and everything living on the property. And 
if you want to approach it regeneratively, you're taking all those into consideration and you're making sure everything is complementing each other and I guess being regenerative towards each other using the regenerative word to ensure that it can not only be sustainable, but it's also enhancing everything on the land too. Yeah. Marla Spivak, who's like a MacArthur Genius Award winning um, bee researcher, has talked about the need for context specific approaches to evolving beekeeping in a sustainable and regenerative direction. Okay. Right. So there's a lot of different ways that people keep bees professionally, and we're not here to tell anyone that they're doing it wrong. We're hopefully here to lay out a path to help people wherever they're at increase benefits for beekeepers, honeybees, and landscapes. Gotcha. Okay. So then let's go specifically to bees and the kind of uh, environment they thrive in regeneratively. Is there a certain like type of land, place on earth, forest they like, plants they like more, or is it just, does it depend on the bee? Those are great questions. And, you know, we're, we're talking about Apis mellifera, right? The honeybee. Mm -hmm. um, there's six uh, species of social bee it might be seven, but pretty sure it's six. Um, and, and Apis mellifera is the European honeybee who is a little less, less aggressive than less defensive is the right way to say it. And then the African honeybee is more manageable than the, uh, Asian honeybee, the Apis serrani, which are like these huge honeybees. Um, so we're talking about Apis mellifera and we're hoping that we can take native pollinators into account in that biodiversity piece and prove that, or rather set standards that encourage increased wellness for native pollinators as well. So when we're looking at Apis mellifera and then we're looking at other pollinators, the site is totally going to direct the approaches that you take, right? If you're in a national forest, there's things that you can that you can't do that you could do on private land, um, but vice versa. There's going to be issues that you're going to have to deal with in private land that you're probably not going to have to deal with in national forests. So every situation is going to be unique, and we're hoping to create these guidelines and outcomes that beekeepers can use to design their beekeeping program within their context, and then create this regenerative regeneratively validated uh end product of regenerative honey so that they can go to the market with a higher price point and then finance all that activity so while it's premature to say exactly what the outcomes are going to be in different contexts it's timely to say we're, we're striving in that direction to empower beekeepers to figure that out based off their context and these guidelines and outcomes and definitions that's fair. So let's take it back to, let's say, let's go to your property for context. Okay. If you wanted to take your property to the regenerative level for beekeeping, what are some things you would have to change or look into to do that? That's awesome. So I'm on a two and a half acre, uh, semi-rural parcel in North San Diego County. That means that you know, I'm, I'm, my bees are going to fly like three to five to maybe even seven miles from my hive. Okay. Which is pretty crazy. 
So like that's their radius. Yeah. Okay. And right now we're in discussion over whether regenerative has to mean organic. Okay. Or is regenerative kind of a more realistic alternative to organic because you can't control where the bees are going to fly unless you set up nets, but that's just kind of anti-thema to the whole thing. Okay. So where is the extent of that landscape? Is it just my two and a half acres? If so, it's like, I'll maybe have one hive, but man, if I planted that thing out and I planned the planting so that there was nectar producing flowers all year round, that might satisfy those bees to a certain density. But then I'd have to, you know, really see if it's worth it to make all that investment. But if I was like pumping out regenerative honey and it was selling at a super high price point, then maybe that would be worth it. Okay. You know, um, so right now honey is kind of that race to the bottom market. So one of the big pieces that we want to see in place is what is the value of clean, regenerative, validated honey? And from what we can tell, there's a lot of demand for it in the marketplace because the honey market has gotten so corrupted by bad honey. It's one of the most faked foods in the world, right? Right. Top yeah. three. Yeah, yeah, top three. And it's just, it's almost impossible without high-tech machinery to tell if it's real or not, right? A test that costs hundreds of dollars. Yeah. Um, two thousands of dollars, depending on where you get a quote from. So, yeah. So you were saying it depends on like landscape and where you're at, but for say your property, you have two and a half acres. They have a certain radius they go around. What's the biodiversity increase that you would like to see if you added bees to your property? Yeah. So we're navigating this in the working group. What is, what is that level? What is that standard? And my approach is that we want to partner with beekeepers and make their lives better, okay. right? So we're not going to like set an impossibly high bar and say only those who can do impossible things are, are valued here. You know, we want to set a, a path mm-hmm. and help beekeepers walk down that path wherever they're at, wherever they're starting. So that means like a baseline assessment, mm-hmm. you know, like, what what landscapes are you working on currently and what is the current biodiversity and soil health of those landscapes and probably we'll have different radiuses from the hive that will get different weightings and and be able to assume that like they have more influence the closer they are to the hive than further out Mm because if they're like you know a small beekeeper trying to influence land use policy three miles away from their apiary yeah maybe there'll be context where that makes sense uh, but more likely they're going to be able to influence it more locally. Yeah. And if they can, um, and we want to reward them for increasing the biodiversity and the ability of that ecosystem to cycle nutrients and retain carbon in the soil. So we'll want to have like a weighted score sheet and then see improvement that improvement is a huge part of regenerative, right? It doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to get better every year. So in that weighted score sheet, like you mentioned, carbon in the soil, would that be something of like a baseline measure that you would sit once again, we go to your property, measure the carbon in your soil. Mm -hmm. And like every year we go back and we are measuring carbon again to see if there's like an increase in carbon because that indicates you are being more biodiverse and Am I explaining that right? So biodiversity and carbon are not directly linked. Okay. Except for the food soil web, in which case like we need soils analysis, which some people do at an affordable price point. But uh, 
biodiversity and soil health are both markers of a healthy functioning ecosystem. Okay. So we want to measure both. Measure both. So yeah. those would be two baseline measurements for biodiversity per se. For ecosystem regeneration. Yeah. Yeah. And okay. then for beehive regeneration or bee apiary regeneration and then beekeeper regeneration, there's going to be different measures. Got you. But that is more along the lines of like biodiversity regeneration. Ecological regeneration. Yeah. Ecological, which measures biodiversity, right? Yes. Ecological regeneration will probably roll up as a function of soil health and biodiversity. Okay. I guess where I'm getting lost is what's the difference between soil health and biodiversity? Yeah, cool. No, it's <laughs> huge. Um, so biodiversity is a bigger picture view of the whole ecosystem and the plants that work within it, right? So if you just have one crop, that's not a biodiverse system. But if you have multiple crops and you know, beneficial pollinator gardens around the crops, that's way more organisms within that landscape, just in terms of plants. Mm -hmm. But then on top of that are going to be all these beneficial insects that are gathering nectar from those pollinator plantings around the crops. Um, the food soil web is going to have way more organic uh, material, which is a byproduct of the organisms that live in the soil. So like a monoculture is basically like corn and that's it. They like kill everything else. Mm -hmm. A biodiverse polycultural system is multiple kinds of crops. Then all these beneficial insects that live in these insectaries, which help with pest control. And then the food soil web is way more alive, full of nematodes and fungus and other microorganisms, microorganisms that enable that nutrient exchange between plants and soil. So like that system is teeming with life, whereas mm -hmm. that monoculture is like, you know, one crop growing. Yeah. So soil is just one part in biodiversity and biodiversity is more of like including like the insects and the animals and all the plants and the soil it's everything with on the property soil is just kind of the baseline of it in one measurement of biodiversity but not everything well biodiversity is a separate measure and then soil health is like we're looking at the organic matter in the soil we're looking at the nutrient density in the soil we're looking at the ability of the soil to retain water and carbon so that the uh ecosystem is more resilient right it's not just like this powdery dust that's dead and when water comes it actually erodes the landscape it's this rich you know humus filled uh complex that soaks up water and like slowly feeds it to the plants over time gotcha. so okay. yeah so soil health is maybe a little more physical geological measurement of ecosystem health and then biodiversity is more of a plants, animals, microorganisms, measurement of ecosystem health. Gotcha. Okay. So you're just putting soil in kind of a completely separate category than biodiversity. Um, but biodiversity impacts soil and soil impacts biodiversity. Yes. Okay. Great. Great work. Making sure. Yeah, you nailed that. Okay. <laughs> I got you. Okay. okay. The soil matters. The biodiversity matters. The bees. Yeah um they you say from the main hive they go about you said three to five miles from the main hive right 
does what they're collecting from impact what you guys would deem as regenerative honey? There's the rub, Brando. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Amina Harris at UC Davis Honey and Pollination Institute likes to say, you can't control where the bees are going to go, uh-huh. you know, but they do exhibit, um, uh, what do they call it? Resource exhaustion. They focus on one crop that's giving nectar. Um, it's pretty cool in the mornings when the first uh, nectar gatherers are going out, they like take a big survey of the landscape and kind of like different ones visit different places and gather nectar from a couple different flowers at the same type and then bring it back to the hive and share it with their sister bees and recruit them. So they're and like bee scouts? They're bee scouts okay. who then like provide a bee map okay. to the other bees and like, hey, go check it out. And then there's this kind of quorum development that happens within the hive. And then like before long, all the foragers are working on one kind of crop and they'll even be able to communicate like there's actually spiders in that crop. So don't go there and they'll like uh-huh. headbutt each other. If Yeah. Anyways, it's pretty wow. wild. Honeybee Democracy talks about that whole thing. It's a book. Um, but they focus on a certain nectar producing crop or, mm-hmm. or plant um, that's in bloom at a certain time. And they'll work it until it's basically exhausted. Okay. So a beekeeper who's paying attention can harvest a varietal honey, right? If they took, put fresh boxes on top of their hives when they know that the orange blossoms are in bloom or the sage blossoms in bloom down here in Southern California, they can collect just that kind of honey in that time period because they know the bees are going to go to the sage blossoms collect that nectar because those are like the best blossoming flower in the current time frame essentially that the bees most likely will go to and collect nectar from and it's not going to be a hundred percent but they know what sage nectar looks like and when it turns into honey what it looks and tastes like so as long as they're close enough to enough plants they can be confident that their bees are going to bring that nectar in when that nectar flow is happening. Would you say it's like, it's like an 80, 20, like 80% most likely to sage 20 is unknown or it's pretty wild in, in North America, no standard really exists for varietal honey. As long as the majority of the honey comes from a certain plant. Oh, okay. And, and even like, that's not like 50% majority. It's just, a, I guess that's a plurality. Like the number just has to be highest from that plant for it to be called that. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So even if it's only like 30%, if that is the highest percentage honey and the next highest one is 20, that can be considered a sage. That's interesting. Or orange blossom. But as mead makers, like we know pure varietal honey by taste and smell and to an extent sight. And so we can determine if this honey is actually the vast majority of that nectar or not. All right. So say you're a beekeeper and you're doing your best to keep your property regenerative and your beehive is on your property. As you said, you can't control where your bees are going though. And maybe they're collecting sage nectar from a farmer nearby who isn't organic or regenerative, but he's just happens to be your neighbor and that's what's in blossom can you not call that honey regenerative because of what that farmer is doing even though you're doing your best and they may be collecting 
some nectar from your flowers too? Okay, I think it's important to just clarify scale here. Okay. Because there are, you know, sideliners who have 40 to 100 hives who do beekeeping as a hobby that produces revenue. Okay. And while they're an important part of the beekeeping ecosystem, I think looking at New Zealand, where Manuka honey is like a very specialized and defined honey, okay. and there's a market for high-end Manuka honey because of the medicinal benefits that have been proven by the state of New Zealand-sponsored research into Manuka honey. Okay. Um, like what I understand is the typical Manuka producer is around 100 hives. Oh, wow. Okay. And they can like make a living for a family with a hundred hives. Okay. So in my mind, that's kind of the, the starting point for a regenerative, a professional regenerative beekeeper. Interesting. So the yeah. models out there. Well, Manuka is unique, right? Cause there's the whole health aspect, which has been like proven that like Manuka honey has these bioactive compounds that are good for a number of reasons and like the research is there just fully back it up i've heard anecdotally that like most dark honeys have similar beneficial health aspects but the research to really lock that down and support that is so far undone so so how do they handle that question i guess well they think about it in terms of like health food like this is a health food that has been proven to be good for people so it is a value retentive business model for honey okay. but it's not from this holistic ecological human and animal welfare perspective gotcha okay so in a way an, an analogous model does exist but we're working on a broader qualification of that benefit okay essentially your regenerative honey is more looking for like higher volume beekeepers that have more control over like where their bees are going and what they're doing you can't really control so if we were to compare regenerative beekeeping with manuka production beekeeping regenerative beekeeping is about building relationships within the beekeepers network that work together to increase the outcomes of improved beekeeper livelihood, improved health for bees, improved health for ecosystems. Okay. So at the base of regenerative, then I would say is there's a community aspect to it because you can do everything you personally can do with your property per se. But ultimately, like you're saying, you can't really control where the bees go slash where they're collecting from. So inherently being a regenerative beekeeper means you're talking with your neighbors. You are a big part of your community and people know what you're going for. And you're not only trying to improve what you're doing on your property, you're trying to improve how everyone else is interacting with your bees and where they collect nectar from. Totally. Yeah. So ultimately if a beekeeper is working with a landowner, so in some situations, the beekeepers own the land, but in most situations, the beekeepers lease or have some kind of agreement to site their hives on someone else's land. Okay. So this land can be fallow land where there's nothing growing. This can be ag land where something's growing. This can be conservation land where an ecosystem is um, flourishing mm -hmm. or there could be 
I mean, apparently there is someone in West Virginia who is going to mountaintops that have been turned into strip mines and replanting them and then putting beehives on them in order to increase economic value, but also ecological value of these landscapes that have been pretty much destroyed, right? Hmm. So imagine a beekeeper now is working with a landowner and saying, hey, if we can qualify our honey or my honey that I produce with my bees on your land, there's a good chance I can like pay you rent Mm -hmm. to get access to the site. And as other landowners who are in similar situations realize like, oh, we could get rent from beekeepers if we just plant this seed mix and stop spraying these chemicals, that might pencil out, right? So an economic incentive to evolve land management and agricultural practices. Gotcha. Because ultimately what you're saying is most beekeepers don't necessarily always have control over the land that they take their bees to, to harvest honey, essentially. Right. So ultimately it's going to be a team effort if you're thinking about being regenerative holistically and what the business looks like currently speaking. Yeah. The landowners are a big part of the, the ecosystem. Gotcha. Okay. So that makes sense. That has to do with how honey is collected Mm -hmm. and the bees that are collecting it. So say we're pushing that forward and Mm -hmm. that is happening. And now we go to mead brewers who actually buy the high-end honey. What is their responsibility of being regenerative along this chain of like beekeepers and landowners and everyone else who is putting in a lot of effort to be regenerative with the bees, with the honey that they're collecting. What is the metery involved at all in the regenerative process and how so what standards should they be held to? Oh, that's awesome. And I think that's where our coffee conversation really illustrates what's possible. Because mm-hmm. in, in this system that we're fleshing out here, there's a major difference between regenerative honey and commodity honey. Mm-hmm. Just like in the coffee system, there's a major difference between commodity coffee and specialty coffee. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, it's at the coffee shop where the customer comes to understand what that difference is. Mm-hmm. And so whether that mead maker is going to make a huge deal out of their honey sourcing and the story behind it or not is up to them. But I think there's a huge opportunity to differentiate meaderies that are just using commodity bulk honey of questionable quality and sourcing versus regenerative mead makers who are saying, hey, we only source this kind of honey. It makes a difference because taste this product versus this product. And if you're interested in a world where there's more biodiversity, there's more soil health, there's more health for bees, there's better livelihoods for beekeepers, then it would be a good idea to invest your money for alcohol in regenerative mead. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I think where my mind goes with that is a couple of different places. But the first one I'll go to is um, what I know best, which is organic coffee. Okay. So with organic coffee, you have uh, like farms have organic certifications for like they grow green coffee organically and right. they get inspected and like it's certified. But the organic inspection doesn't end at the farm. Um, you, if a roaster or an importer buys organic coffee, 
they are also open to inspections on like how they store that organic green coffee. Is it stored with like other green coffee that's not organic? If so, they lose their certification for organic. Like it needs to be stored separately if you're a green coffee importer. Right. If you're a roaster who's roasting organic coffee, you need to have a roaster dedicated to organic coffee. You can't roast commercial coffee or even specialty coffee that's not organic in the same roaster as an organic. And if you do, you have to like clean your roaster and like purge it and then roast organic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's a super intense process. All right. And so ultimately I think where I'm going with that and regenerative honey is do you picture systems in place along the chain to make sure regenerative honey is being taken care of and represented the way you picture regenerative honey being represented or you're kind of just more happy with regenerative honey like being something that like a lot of beekeepers and farmer and landowners work on and like where that honey goes and how the end user uses it is up to them as long as it's creating this more regenerative agriculture. Yeah, that's a next level question, man. Thank you. Sure. Uh, yeah. So I think that's where the tension between organic and regenerative really comes to a head. Because mm-hmm. um, if we can't figure out how to get a just baseline organic honey, right now in the United States, organic honey is a loophole. Right, the um, USDA, which runs the organic program, National Organic Program, NOP, has had a draft definition of organic honey for something like 12 years. Mm-hmm. And they've hesitated from moving it into the actual program because these questions of how far from the hive needs to be organic has really created a lot of contention and debate within the beekeeping organization in North America or in, in the United States. And like the EU has kind of jumped this by saying, well, there's different circles, like the three mile radius needs to be totally clean and free of these potentially contaminating activities. And then the five mile radius needs to be like reasonably clean and free of the worst of the potentially contaminating activities. So the U S is kind of, hit the pause button on that and it's just sitting on a back burner at usda and there are a few certifiers that do certify organic honey but they're basically in hawaii and they use the livestock loophole to certify the the bees and that is what it is so can we actually come up with an organic certification that is reasonable within the united states that's like the first question that answers or that applies to this question this that's the first question for me that applies to your question of you know, is regenerative organic and further down the value chain, does it need to have a separate uh, chain of custody than conventional honey? Mm-hmm. Or will it lose its regenerative certification or definition? Mm-hmm. And that's even a, a question too, is like organic is a certification that growers have to pay for. A lot of growers who are already practicing organic and regenerative things are like, I don't want to put my money into that whole mm-hmm. certification program. I want to have direct relationships with my customers and be able mm-hmm. to show them, come to my farm. I will show you what I do. Yeah. And then you can choose for yourself whether it meets your standards or not. Mm-hmm. So this idea of self-validation, pure validation, stakeholder validation, as opposed to certifying program validation that you pay a fee for mm-hmm. is, is part of the conversation here too. 
Okay, that's interesting because coffee runs into the same problems that you're talking about where it comes to like farms practicing organically, but they don't want to pay for it. And ultimately, that's where direct trade came into play, where it's people going to the farms and forming relationships and like making sure they're growing coffee and they're seeing the practices essentially. Mm -hmm. As we talked about recently with direct trade though, is that term has gotten like muddled and watered down and a lot of people use it even though it doesn't directly apply to them. So when it comes, bringing it back to honey, I would hate to see regenerative take the same approach as direct trade in the sense that I wouldn't want the regenerative tag to get watered down in the future, essentially. Amen. Yeah. I also see the issues with like charging farmers money and like, like not all of them have the money to pay for certifications and just the red tape that goes into certifications when it comes to governments, in my opinion, and defining all that stuff. So I think where I'm going with this question is ultimately like, do you see regenerative somewhere in the middle of those? So we want it to persist. Like from my understanding, if we do not change the trajectory of human activity on earth, Mm -hmm. the ability of the earth to support life is going to decrease significantly, Mm -hmm. potentially to the point of like no longer capable of supporting human life. Yeah. I don't know if we all agree on this. I know it's a contentious topic and it's a bit uh, existentially overwhelming when one really considers it. But if humanity is going to last on Earth, we have to change what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. So I, I think, you know, now is the time. And it's not like a short term window. It's like every day that we don't do it, it gets a little more challenging. Mm-hmm. But I think we've got our lifetimes to figure this out. And if we don't figure it out by the time of, end of our lifetimes, like, it could be over. I mean, not to be alarmist. <laughs> I mean, hopefully my kids figure it out along with their kids. No, how about our job. kids like are like, cool, yeah, thank you for setting that up. We'll operate that and we'll go bring it to other planets or something. Right? Like, you want to increase the system's capacity to support life? Well, we figured out how to do that on Earth. So now we can do it in other parts of the universe. Yeah. On Mars. Um, or wherever. Uh, so we'll have the warp drive figured out by then. So, so I, I think that there is an imperative to do it now. Now, what is actually the most reasonable and effective way to go about it? Well, we don't have, you know, an infinite budget, but we do have beekeepers who need better livelihoods. We, need, we have consumers who want clean honey mm-hmm. and want to know that their dollars are making the earth more capable of supporting life. Okay, so like those two pieces are foundational. Um, government involvement is like, they just don't want people to get sick and die. Yeah. So I don't think that there's a risk there. So I don't think we need to like worry about them explicitly. Um, if they want to help us, great. But like, as long as we're not doing something that's going to get people sick and die, like they're going to be pretty happy with us. Um, over here on the landscape, the landowner side, like they want an economic incentive to improve their land's health and increase its value and ecosystem functions and stuff. So we've got consumers, we've got beekeepers, we've got landowners. We also have the bees who are tied between all this. The consumers want to know that the bees are doing better. Beekeepers want healthier bees because they're cheaper to operate and it's less depressing when your bees aren't dying all the time. And the landowners want to know that the bees are healthy. So 
all of these pieces together, I think we've got to we've got to hold those in our mind when we answer this question of is it a hard certification or is it a set of definitions that are potentially subject to dilution and ultimately becoming valueless, right? Like you're saying direct trade can kind of be anything now. Mm-hmm. But if we have a clear definition and we have a clear end industry that is repeating this definition and validating it in a peer-based way, and then to an extent policing it, right? If there are people that are making claims about regenerative that mm-hmm. are not supportive, maybe there's a database that says like, hey, to be really regenerative, you have to be on this program and you have to be showing how your efforts are creating better outcomes for bees, beekeepers, and landscapes. And you have to be documenting that and publishing it. And every once in a while, the industry group's going to go out there and verify. And we're also going to take feedback from the public. You know, I think one of the biggest things that people could do is pull a sample off the shelf and send it to a lab. And if it's coming out with glyphosate or lead or pesticides in it, like that needs to be brought to the public's attention. And that brand needs to figure out a solution to that. Otherwise, they should not be selling that honey. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So... I think we would agree there needs to be some sort of governing body that has the definition and the standards figured out and on paper, essentially. Yes, the organization. I mean, governing body even has, there needs to be some kind of industry group that has defined this and communicated it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And do you think that group should be able to certify beekeepers and meteries and anyone who is involved in beat as like they sell regenerative honey like it's not like a government certification essentially but it's through that group and it's kind of a like peer certification yeah where it's kind of like yeah they they document it's transparent they have it on their website or whatever it is um or it could even be through this industry's website that they publish everything is that of benefit you think or do you think that is just kind of a money pit that would discourage regenerative honey more than help it in policing it, essentially. Yeah, I think I think that that is a question that we've got to convene a whole community over. Okay. You know, how do we, like, now that the vision is illustrated and we're all kind of holding it in our minds, how do we actually set this project up to be successful and create the change we want to see in the world? without becoming a victim of its own bureaucracy. Yeah. Okay. To sum up what you are saying, regenerative honey, it's still in the baby or the infancy stage, I would say, where... It can't live by itself. Yeah. It's not self-sufficient <laughs> it's yet. It's not self-sufficient yet. The vision is ultimately to make properties and agriculture is more biodiverse, increased soil health, wherever beekeepers are taking their bees and they're working with their communities to do those things. And that in turn creates an economic incentive to sell their honey for higher prices. And meteries can be a customer for honey. Uh, They don't have to be the only customer, though. There could be other customers for that high-end honey, too. And we're finding that there's a lot of them, that a a lot of food sellers are like, wait, you can help answer these questions that these customers have of whether my honey is clean and legit and good for the bees and good for the earth. Like, 
please get that to me mm -hmm. soon. Yeah, so it, the broader impact for consumers isn't just in meat, essentially. It's it's in a lot of different places because honey touches a lot of different things. Totally. And a good starting point is figuring out how to objectively measure and track a regenerative practice. The beekeeper level. At a beekeeper level. And, get, and a landscape level. In a landscape level to get that sorted and figured out. And then what definitions of honey cleanliness are. So like percentages of like this amount of honey is considered regenerative. So it can have a regenerative tag because we ultimately can't control where the bees go. But we can test the end product for cleanliness. Okay. Right. We could test it for free, that it is free of pesticides, lead, glyphosate. So we can't necessarily control where they go, but we can test the end product and know that like, even though they might've gone five miles off property, they didn't necessarily collect any of this, these bad things. Right. Okay. And so you think after going from infancy to like adolescence, Sure, adolescence, let's go with that. <laughs> Would be getting the beekeeper and the land figured out. And you feel like maybe a next step after that might be to address where that good honey is going and how after. it's being presented to the consumer after that initial step. Is yeah, let's start with the pure solid. product. Okay. Yeah, let's That's start fine. with the pure product. We know it's legit. We know it's having a positive impact. Now, what are our partners who are buying the regenerative honey and doing something with it going to say and do yeah that's a whole nother set of questions <laughs> that's fair that's fair I, it is it's a it's a big it's a big thing to tackle in my opinion yeah because if they're blending down blending it down with non-regenerative honey like yeah that doesn't work that's bad yeah and i think where my mind goes to specifically golden coast meat too is we try with our meats specifically to present the honey in and of itself in the end form of the liquid meat, essentially. Right, right, right. And I think that's a, a, a continuation of that regenerative approach where we aren't trying to throw in anything to take away from that really good honey. And yeah, a lot of meaderies don't just brew straight honey meads. honey meads and right. do a lot of other things with their meads essentially so yeah. i don't know i think that's just a whole interesting topic that should be fleshed out eventually but like you're saying like the base needs to be figured out before we kind of dive into how the mead world takes to regenerative honey right and the honey products world right like if they use regenerative honey because then can they then call their product a regenerative product and it's like what's the percentage of honey in your product, you know, and what are your other practices and on... yeah, or like even a honey bottle, like it might be regenerative honey in the bottle, but is the bottle regenerative? Right. That's been a issue of contention already is like the packaging considerations. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, Patagonia sets a great example of if we try to be perfect, we'll, we'll never get anything good done. Yeah. And if we commit to, annual improvement mm -hmm. will get a lot further over the course of our lives mm -hmm. than if we just set this like impossible standard yeah. and never make any action towards it yeah 
perfectionism is impossible. It's not. And counterproductive. Yeah, it's not the human condition. Right. Also really boring. Yeah, if you can even define it. Like, it's it's an ideal. It's, yeah. This is not the human reality of trade-offs and compromises and continual improvement. Okay. That's fair. So is there anything else I didn't mention or didn't ask that you want to talk about when it comes to regenerative honey? Thanks, man. Um, I mean, I think we're we're doing the best that we can with regenerative honey right now. We're working with an organic producer in a part of the world where there isn't large-scale agriculture um, where the honey is being raised. So the bees are in forests gathering nectar, and then these bees are being treated with minimal intervention and no chemicals, synthetic chemicals. So we're more reasonably confident that this is as close to regenerative honey as we can get at scale now. Mm -hmm. But we are, it's been a little bit since we've updated this project, but the last effort was um, trying to cite hives in Windwolves uh, Park, which is a privately held but publicly accessible reserve near Bakersfield. Oh, okay. And they've got 27 square miles of certified organic pasture. Um, but they're right next door to the cuties, which are the tangerines, the seedless tangerines. Mm. And the cutie growers do not like bees nearby because bees create seeds in tangerines. Mm. So as a result, they've got like a no-fly zone, and we've got to find an apiary site on wind wolves that doesn't violate their no-fly zone. And then we've got to find a beekeeper who's willing to take the risk to put hives out there, not being sure what the honey production will be and not being sure what the economic return will be on that honey that is pretty. Okay, that's fair. So ultimately, Golden Coast is working with a regenerative honey farm that it's in Brazil, right? Yes. Okay. And we want to work with one in California, but we just haven't found one that meets our definitions or satisfies our definitions currently. It's even possible to like imagine satisfying those definitions. Yeah. And so we're going to Brazil. Have we ever gotten regenerative honey anywhere else or was Brazil the first place that we found that really met those definitions? There's some from Africa that we think could qualify as regenerative, but the honey profile is like super intense. So we'd, to adapt it to one of our recipes would take more R&D work than we've currently scheduled bandwidth for. Okay. Um, so that's that's on the radar, but it's not happening yet. Okay. Africa, Brazil. All right. Well, thanks for talking regenerative mead with me. Shoot, man. My hey, pleasure. Thanks for asking great questions that will actually help us succeed. So, Cheers. Cheers, man. There it is, a deep dive into the future of regenerative honey. If there was anything said that we skipped over or you would like to know more about, feel free to email us at podcast at goldencoastmead.com with your questions and we'll try to answer them to the best of our abilities for you. Now here's the weekly bee joke to hopefully put a smile on your face. What is a bumblebee's blood type? Bee positive. Meat out. <laughs>